I am in the midst of uh, a mission of Redeemer series, four sermons. Um, the order is a little out of order, and honestly, I forgot the order. When I started preparing on Thursday, I realized I was supposed to do the community sermon second, but I was already prepared, so we're going to do the Word of God is our rule, of, uh, our rule for faith and practice today, and then community next week, Lord willing. There are four parts to this sermon series, and it's all about the mission God has called us to as a bit of a bridge between finishing the book of Acts, and then starting the book of Ephesians after Easter. It's important to be recalibrated, refreshed about the mission God has called us to as a church. And you will note that that mission for our local church is directly from the mission Christ gave to the church. It should never be much different than that. Just some nuances for our particular community that we mention. It is a mission, or our mission, to mature as a community of Christians who love to worship their God, study his word, and proclaim his gospel to the world. We covered worship as our central activity. It's really the central thrust of humankind. But as redeemed sinners, we have the opportunity to go before our Father and worship him in response to the great salvation that he has given us. I'm hoping that every member of Redeemer would be well acquainted with our mission statement. It's always on the back of your hymnal or at the back of your uh, bulletin. And also the biblical basis for it. And so I'll read the two verses that give us the basis for our mission, and then we'll move into studying a bit about why the Bible is so central in the life of this church, why it's our focus, it's our chief activity, you might say, to study God's Word. So first, hear God's Word. This is Matthew twenty-eight, eighteen through 20. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And then from Colossians 1, 28 and 29, Him, Christ, we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Let's bow together for prayer. Father in heaven, please guide us by the commands and principles of your word. Help us to desire adherence to your word. Give us aid by your spirit to understand your revealed will and to put its direction into practice. I especially ask for your Spirit's aid as we consider the how and the why Scripture is to be our rule for faith and life. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Today our focus is that part of Redeemer's mission that is to study his word. During the Reformation of the 16th century, many wonderful things were recovered. I mentioned to you that Calvin saw chiefly the reform of worship, and a clear teaching of how people could be right with God, the gospel. Those are the two main things he saw at the forefront. And it seems out of order. Why not the message of the gospel first? Well, in that context, the church had become so weighed down with obscuring um, outward trappings that you couldn't gather what the gospel was just in the environment it was. So to make worship look like the Bible would describe it to be, would take some work, and that would clear the way for the proclamation of the word to be heard more clearly. 
You can't take one or the other. You need both of those for the reform of the church. And it's always advice to us over the years to consider how important these things are. So we covered worship. Now we're going to consider where we can have clarity about the gospel, the Bible, the word of God itself. The Reformation also gave, um, gave us these five solas that you've heard before. And the first one is sola scriptura, the Bible alone. Specifically, the Bible alone is our rule for faith and life, or faith and practice. Redeemer is committed to this doctrinal truth. The Bible is our rule for faith and life. So I want to, in the way of a few questions, um, give answers. Some of this will be elementary for you if you've been a believer a long time. Some are new to the faith, new to the church, and you wonder where is the church's, uh, what's their position on the Bible? And that is an essential question you should ask of any church because that explains everything else. How a church relates to the Bible will tell you what that church is about, what priority concerns that church, uh, who they are. So it's an important question, and it's part of our mission, so we need to explain it. A main part of our mission, to study his word, what is his word? What do we believe about the Bible? What is the Bible is the first question to answer. Just what is this book that people talk about called the Bible? Well, simply, the Bible is God's revelation to man, mainly about his salvation through Christ. It's intricate, there's much to it, but that's the gist of what we have, God's revelation or his revealing to man, um, giving us information that we need to have from him because only he can give it. Now, there are two kinds of ways God reveals himself. We have to be aware of this. Everyone's aware of the first way, whether they acknowledge it or not. That's called natural revelation. And now I'm talking about nature. I'm talking about if you go anywhere outside and you look and pick up a piece of grass, and you study that piece of grass, just looking at it tells you there's some design to it. The closer you look at it, the more design appears. And then when you study how the grass relates with other blades of grass, how it relates to the dirt, the grubs under the dirt, um, the different elements that are uh, in the ground, um, the terrain of the ground, the tree that's coming out, and the roots, and the way it works, and the way the life is in the bark but not in the middle. And you can tell how old the tree is just in the basis of the rings. And it drops leaves at certain times, and it grows leaves back. And birds, all sorts of birds, land in the tree. And then you look up in the sky and you see the clouds. And you see all that's around us. And that's just right here in our little old neighborhood. You can see the signs of a designer everywhere. And so nature reveals that there is a God. I just saw this morning um, that some billion-dollar satellite that you and I paid for got a good close-up picture of Jupiter, and it's amazing. I mean, we've seen the picture since we were little of Jupiter and that kind of big hole that goes in the middle, that ever-churning ever storm, as they say. Well, these scenes, you've got to go and see them. They're incredible when they get closer to Jupiter. It's even more beautiful than you can imagine. And that's one of a million possible planets and stars and the like. And all of this points to a designer. And make no mistake, you are the rational one if you see that and say something designed it. You're the rational one. Uh, Atheism is irrational. Because of all the evidences around us that there is a designer. Something came before all this and created it. This is exactly what Romans chapter 1 speaks of. Everyone's accountable knowing there's a God. Paul wrote, For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they, humankind, are without excuse. We know there's a God by natural revelation. But what we're talking about today 
is that special revelation that we are granted by God's grace, that he gives us insight about creation, namely about us and our dilemma and our need for his salvation. We could not know this unless he took steps to reveal himself to us, ultimately in the person of Christ. In the scripture is the God-inspired testimony, trustworthy testimony of Christ, ultimately. And we have to have this. It's necessary for us to know God. This is the special revelation that we require as sinful human beings. In the book of Hebrews, the author starts, remember the Old Testament is finished and Christ has come and fulfilled all the elements of forecasting that happened in the Old Testament that were recorded by the authors there. God's authorship stamped upon it because he worked through the prophets to bring the word in its full, pure form. And now Christ has come. The author of Hebrews spends most of the book showing how Christ has fulfilled everything that had been forecasted. But some key words in the opening chapters of Hebrews tell us a bit of why we need this special revelation, what the Bible is. Listen to what the author says. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The Bible is the written record of God's work of redemption through Christ. The story starts with the prophet Moses, In the first five books, and then through a series of other prophets that he raises up, there's a forecasting of the Messiah through the life and experiences of Israel, namely in the Old Testament, until it unfolds at the end of the Old Old Testament, waiting for Christ to come. The New Testament begins with this kind of an Old Testament throwback prophet, John the Baptist. And he forms the link between the Old and the New and introduces Christ. He says, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. There's this continuity of the message and the way God delivers the message through prophets. And then Jesus comes and Jesus commissions apostles who are New Testament prophets. It's key here that the Bible is given by God's inspiration and the prophets and the apostles are the key overseers of this word. And the prophets have this direct revelation from God, the apostles likewise, and they are commissioned by Jesus himself. These are critical features in understanding why the Bible's special, why it's different from other works of literature. The New Testament, written under the oversight of the apostles, now gives us even more clarity about the process that God used to give us his special revelation, his word. In that light, when you hear the Bible is inspired. What does that mean exactly? Well, what it doesn't mean is this. It doesn't mean that the Bible is inspiring, though it may be. That's not the meaning of this. Um, It's not like other works of literature just inspire me. You know, if I read a John Krakauer book about mountain climbing, I'm inspired to go climb a mountain or I'm inspired to not climb a mountain, whatever the case. The point is that's not what we're talking about with the inspiration of the scriptures. That's not what we mean. Uh, We don't mean that God simply inspired, like poked Moses by some instance in his life to go write a really good book. Come on, Moses, go write about me. That's not what we mean either. That's not like a parent trying to prompt their 
their kid to do their homework. Go, go do their homework. And I was inspired by my parent to do my homework. That's not what we mean when we're talking about the inspiration of Scripture. The inspiration of the biblical books means something else, and it's clearly identified by the biblical authors themselves. In 2 Peter, he is describing the process, of, among other things, the process of inspiration, so we better understand what is meant by this. In 2 Peter chapter 1, he writes, And we have the prophetic word made, made more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. And here's the key verse, 2 Peter 1.21. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That's the process of inspiration. That's what we mean the Bible is inspired. That the authors themselves were carried along by God's Holy Spirit to be sure to communicate just what God wanted to communicate. The very words. Not just the thoughts or the concepts. The very words when the author was writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. B.B. Warfield, that great Princeton theologian, did a good job to give a definition to inspiration. Inspiration is that extraordinary supernatural influence exerted by the Holy Ghost on the writers of our sacred books by which their words were rendered also the word of God and therefore perfectly infallible. Louis Burkhoff, another great theologian, wrote this, By inspiration, we understand that that supernatural influence exerted on the sacred writers by the Holy Spirit, by virtue of which their writings are given divine truthfulness and constitute an infallible and sufficient rule of faith and practice. Jesus describes how the apostles would be given this kind of guidance. The New Testament authors affirm what the Old Testament authors did in their inspiration. And remember, prophets in the Old Testament writing were also verified by the signs that they did or they weren't considered prophets. That's how the people knew the writings they gave, like the book of Isaiah or the book of Malachi or Moses writing the first five books. They knew that those authors were under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit by the way that God confirmed through them. In the New Testament era, Jesus promises something. He gives them signs as well to confirm their apostleship. But he also promises them something before he leaves. They're pretty well freaked out as his ministry is going along and it looks like he may be killed. Yet he's giving them all this information. How will they possibly remember it? Well, this is the process of inspiration that Jesus describes in John 14 when he says to his disciples, These things that I have spoken to you while I am with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So there's the promise of God that he'll give his spirit to carry people along, prophets and apostles, to bring us what we have now as the scriptures so that we can trust them and rely upon them. You know, inspiration is a good word, but a better word would be what your ESV says, breathed out by God or God breathed in some other versions. The word is theopneustis, God neustis breathed. God breathed, that's a better way of of understanding what we mean by the Bible is inspired. The Bible is God-breathed. Now, if that's the case, you see how everything else flows from it. The authority of the Scripture, the sufficiency of the Scripture, the trustworthiness of the Scripture, it all flows from this concept of inspiration 
God breathed, how it's described, especially as I read in 2 Peter. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. To answer what is the Bible, our shorter catechism has a really, really helpful logical flow, the first three questions. Listen to what they say. What is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him. Number two, what rule has God given to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy him? The word of God, which is contained in the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments, is the only rule to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy him. In those questions, we see the importance of special revelation and what the special revelation tells us. The third question, what do the scriptures principally teach? The scriptures principally teach what man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. And ultimately, the fundamental duty is to obey the gospel, which means to believe in the gospel, to believe in Christ. So the Bible is a collection of 66 books written by 40 authors or so in three different languages on three different continents, approximately over a span of 1,600 years, at least the writing was. The Bible is inspired, therefore it is inerrant. The Bible contains many different styles of writing, such as poetry, like the Psalms, wisdom literature, uh, like Proverbs, history, like Genesis and Matthew, or gospel history, as it's called, its own genre, parables, metaphors, and prophecy. The Bible describes creation, it describes the fall, it describes sin, it describes God's answer to all these things in the person of Christ. The Bible gives us the good news of Christ, that if anyone would believe in Jesus, they will be saved. So, in that light, it brings us to our second question, when we're thinking of how this church is called to study God's Word. What place should the Bible have, or does the Bible have, in the church? Well, if the worship of God is the central calling as a church, as I suggested last week, then the study of God's Word is our central activity or endeavor, because it informs our worship. It informs everything else. If the Bible is God-breathed, it means that it's authoritative. It's for us to follow because God has said it. And that will sometimes go against the culture the church is living in at a given time. And it's at those times it's most important to understand what the Bible is so that we may adhere to the Scripture and not fall prey to the culture because the culture will change consistently and constantly. That's the only constant is the change that people will derive on their own because they're operating only under natural revelation, and that's severely limiting on most levels. 2 Timothy 3.16 speaks to us about the place of the Word of God in the church. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man or the woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Our confession says something else wise. The authority of the Holy Scripture for which it ought to be believed and obeyed, depends not on the testimony of any man or church, but wholly on God, upon God, who is truth itself, the author thereof. And there is theref- therefore it is to be received because it is the word of God. That won't always be comfortable because that's not how we think naturally, but we need that special revelation to check us, to help us, to sanctify us, to grow us. We depend on the scriptures to know who God is, who we are, and what God requires of us. And the church, therefore, depends on the Bible for its message, for its mission, and for its organization. 
Very simply, its message is the gospel, how we can be right with God through Christ. The mission is essentially what we're reading in Matthew 28 and Colossians 1. And notice the mission in these verses and the mission that we just watched Paul walk through in the book of Acts. It's limited in its scope. It's magnificent in its scope. Matthew 28 says, go and tell everyone the gospel and baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Gather them. And then it's to help grow them in maturity, make disciples to follow whatever I've commanded you. And then Colossians 1 is a carrying out of it, toiling after it so people are complete. So the gathering and the perfecting of the saints or people, we don't know who all the saints are, so we preach the gospels until they come in. That's the mission of the church. That's the scope. It's not the scope to change the culture around us straight up. We hope that happens. We hope born-again people live in such a way as we have an impact. But recognize the spiritual parameters of the church's focus is on the gathering and the perfecting of the saints. Paul didn't go to Rome to say, you know what, Romans? You've got to stop doing all this dumb stuff you're doing. He came to preach Christ and Christ crucified. And that's what the Bible tells us is the scope. We have to have the Bible to know that, to know what our mission is. But it even gives us organization. And I know churches debate about the specific organization. But we know that he's given pastors and teachers. We know that deacons have been assigned. We know that members in the church have responsibilities. We get our organization from the scriptures. When Martin Luther, I think I, I, I preached a couple sermons last week, so I don't remember if I told you all this, but it's worth hearing twice. Martin Luther, when he was struggling with his faith, he came come to Christ, but he was not growing at Erfurt, which is the first monastery he was part of. So John Van Stoutput saw the frustration in Luther and thought to himself, Luther needs to know Christ better. And the only way he can know Christ better is to go study the Bible straightforwardly. They didn't do that in the monasteries. Most of the, most of the priests in the monasteries had never been exposed to the actual Bible, con- Bible content. So he sent Luther to Wittenberg to hear the voice of Christ, which is the Bible that he would begin studying. And that's where Luther really grew in his faith, under the preaching and teaching and studying of the Word of God. Luther later said that the Bible is the cradle wherein Christ is laid. The preaching and the teaching of the Bible is the thrust behind every ministry in this church. Every ministry. Even those ministries that are for the building up of our fellowship together, it's not sheerly for social fun, which is fine for Christians to enjoy, but it's to develop relationships that provide a context for when the scriptures preached and taught, we can hold each other accountable to living out what we're hearing, and it's done much better when fellowship, when koinonia is happening. Why do I know this? Because the Bible teaches it that way. That's the dynamic. That's why I'll have a sermon on community. The importance of the communion of the saints goes hand in hand with living out what the Bible teaches. There's a little bit of a difference between preaching and teaching of the word, but both go hand in hand and both are commanded by Scripture. Preaching is meant, what is meant by preaching is that the Bible is explained as it was to the original audience and then applied to a modern audience. And the application is key there because it helps you live it out according to our time and place. The straight up truth, and I'm not just saying this to get uh, compliments, um, but if I were you and it was not about application, I would suggest to the elders that we just played recordings of Martin Lloyd-Jones. I would rather hear that than me. He talks a lot slower, a lot clearer, and a lot smarter. The reason why that's not what God has ordained is because Martin Lloyd-Jones is dead and he doesn't know you. 
I know you and you know me and I can't escape your gaze and you can't barely escape mine and ours together. So the applications that come from the word are pastorally applied because your shepherds, your elders included, know you, know the situations you're dealing with. And so there's a personal time-connected application of the timeless truth. So yes, Spurgeon's sermon on a passage should be the same as Lloyd-Jones's or Boyce's or anyone who's being faithful to what the text meant to the audience. But in every case, every generation, in preaching, you need application to be applied to that specific group of sheep by the shepherds of the church or the under-shepherds of Christ who are the shepherds of the church. That's preaching. Teaching is more on the doctrinal level or the picking apart of the various sections of verses about issues, all important. You go deeper in some of the the trouble passages that are difficult that need more fleshing out. Um, It's the doctrinal study of the subject of the Holy Spirit and how that plays out in the Bible. What is our theology of the Holy Spirit, our theology of the Bible, and so forth. This is where teaching comes into play. Both are necessary and commanded by Scripture and have to be main activities and exercises of our church. And we endeavor that they would be that here at Redeemer. Because it says in Hebrews 4.12, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. This doesn't mean we ignore the issues of the day, but... We go through the scriptures, and as God brings up the issues that are in scripture, that are common to us, inevitably, by his providence, we come up against the various issues of the day. It's always relevant in that way. We can be sure of it and trust its dynamic nature because of the Holy Spirit's authorship and God's constant watch care over his people to feed them with the word of God. That's the place the Bible must have in the church. Preaching ministry is primarily expositional. Sunday morning and evening, we try to do our best to provide this kind of sometimes teaching more on Sunday night. Again, the value of the local church with all the resources we have is a community that you're receiving the word with. And this is why I say this and take this with a pastoral love. But, you know, I don't think the average Christian, I could be wrong about this because I know resources are plentiful, but the average Christian doesn't get much Bible exposure. And I feel like if you're only depending just on the sermon Sunday morning, you're going to be a bit anemic. So that's why we provide a Sunday school program and Sunday night, not just to fill numbers out. And Sunday night's all but dead in America. We're one of the few churches that still does it. I think, and you can think I'm wrong, I'm humbly submit this to you, I think generally the reason parking lots are empty Sunday night is a lack of passion for the Word of God and a lot of lip service on the part of evangelicals. Now, I understand you can listen to podcast after podcast after podcast, and you can say, Pastor Tony, but I'm listening to sermons all week. I need to rest. That's fine. I'm not judging you on this. This is not a legalism. In fact, if you're not happy about coming Sunday night, don't come. We don't want sourpusses Sunday night. We're happy when we come Sunday night. But there's barely 100 of us here, and we have 500 some odd people at the church. I'm just saying I hope that if you're not coming to that, that you are filling your minds and hearts with Scripture. Because just the Sunday morning sermon is not enough to offset all the many competing ideas and thoughts and such that you are having confront you. And the special benefit of it is, what I'm trying to make the point about for the church, is it's in the context of community now that we can interact about the scriptures. And it's just much more personal. If I'm only listening to R.C. Sproul every day on my way to work, who am I talking to about that? Now, maybe you are, but just challenge you to think. It's not just constant intake. It's in the context of the community that we can encourage each other concerning. That's the place of the Bible. It's not just a teaching point. It's a living point, too. These are crucial in understanding its play in our life. 
Sunday school, Bible studies. Our Christian school was planted largely to have Scripture integrated into everything. So students only learn to think in terms of what does God think about this topic or what's the angle I see it through in light of God as creator. Our biblical counseling is it's not a dogmatic approach for some sake of narrowness. It's just the belief, simple belief, that the Bible sufficiently answers all the issues, at least on a macro level, that you can come up with. That you can go to God's word and you'll find those principles there. Our leadership training class that I do every fall, the main thing I do, it's not some great um, golden ticket to leadership. Half of the class, if not three quarters of it, is spent learning how to rightly handle the word of truth. This is what Paul said to Timothy, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. The church is responsible to help members understand and apply the Bible. The ministry of the word and sacrament is a classic way of describing the role of the pastor. Our role is to be a minister of the word and sacrament so that the people could grow in grace. Matthew 28, go therefore make disciples of all nations, baptizing them teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus promises to be with that endeavor. That's the place of the Bible and the church. Now, the final question that's personally applied to you, it overlaps a little bit with what I just said. You could take most of what I said and fill it in personally, but there's an angle I want to present to you on this last question. What place does the Bible have in your life personally, in my life personally? Often Christians will talk about wanting to have an experience to gain spiritual confidence, an experience from God. Show me a sign or give me a sense of your Holy Spirit. They say they want to know the Holy Spirit or feel the Holy Spirit's presence. They'll talk about wanting to have this to be assured that they're God's child or that God's with them. There is only, no matter what people tell you, according to Scripture, There is only one way that you can have such an experience for sure. Pick up the book and read it. Because it's written by the Holy Spirit and it's attended by the Holy Spirit. You can only understand it by the Holy Spirit. You can't get closer to the Holy Spirit than to pick up the scriptures and read. You're reading a dynamic book. It's not a dead book. It's a book the Holy Spirit wrote and then promises to be with its reading and its preaching and its teaching. The Holy Spirit is with you as you read the scriptures. The Holy Spirit provides everything you're looking for by way of God's presence and his assurance of his love for you. And if you just read enough of it as a believer, you will be convinced of the loftiness of its, its thoughts and its ideas because they come from God. No person could write this. I'm not telling you to go read the Book of Mormon or read the Quran, but if you read a couple lines, you'd find out how lame they are compared to the Bible. Clearly, one person wrote this. In both cases, pretty crazy. You can quote me on that. Not the Bible. Not the Bible. It's different. Even people who are not believers will pick it up and say there's something different about this language, about the ideas, the unity of its thought, consider the span of its writing. This is not a normal book. This is not any book written by just some person. The Holy Spirit will be found as you read the scriptures. Now, I'm not suggesting the Holy Spirit doesn't work outside of the scriptures. No, but identifying particularly, it's difficult for us. Where we know we'll find the Holy Spirit's presence is by reading the book he wrote. John 16, Jesus promises, 
When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He's talking to the disciples who become apostles. He will write scripture. So just apply that dynamic to the scripture and understand that that is how you know the spirit. In John 16, verse 14, he will glorify me, the Holy Spirit, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. That's how you get to know Christ, by the way, is the That's how you get to know God is by the scriptures. That's the only way that you can expressly know God up front. Yes, you know him by natural revelation and you know of him. But you don't know him until you read the Bible. And the Bible explains to you how you know him and what the knowledge of God really means. The Bible's dynamic because the Holy Spirit wrote it and attends it. Jesus said in John 17, sanctify them, which means make them mature, complete them. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. That was Jesus' prayer for his disciples and by extension us. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Our confession says, our full persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth and divine authority thereof is from the inward work of the Holy Spirit bearing witness by and with the word in our hearts. This is echoing the scriptural idea that Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 2. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. And the Spirit wrote the scriptures. This is why David prayed in Psalm 119, Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. In other words, if you don't open my eyes, I can't understand your word. Open my eyes. The Spirit has to open your eyes. I keep quoting the confession because even though this is the mission of the church uh, series, our church is a confessional church. We think that the Westminster Confession does a great job at describing the Bible's teaching. It's under the Bible, but where it agrees, which we think in most places, otherwise we wouldn't adhere to it, it's worth mentioning and being reminded of. And our confession says, the whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith and life, is either expressly set down in Scripture or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture unto which nothing at any time is to be added, whether by new revelations of the Spirit or traditions of men. Nevertheless, and that's a quote I said earlier, we acknowledge the inward illumination of the Spirit of God to be necessary for the saving understanding of such things as are revealed in the Word. People around speaking in tongues is not a sign of the Spirit any more than a one open in the Bible and reading it. Because you're reading the words of the Spirit. And I would say that the other one has gone away because we have this one. At least in the sense of the New Testament's expression of those things. Do not undersell the value of the Bible in your life in a dynamic way. That's what it should mean in your personal life. Here's the practical, real truth. Rubber meets the road reality for all of us. Life is busy. Life is confusing. There's a myriad of competing thoughts, ideas, and philosophies that assail you and your children every day. We need the guidance that God gives through his word in order to think straight and follow the path that he has before us. When Paul was describing to Timothy what his work as a pastor should be like, he said something interesting that shows the potency of scripture. 
He said to Timothy, but you, continue what you have learned and firmly believe, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred, sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. That's just the Old Testament can make you wise for salvation in Christ. The power of the word of God we are in desperate need of, more need than we really realize, I believe. This is why David described in the psalm we read earlier, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. That's a description of its efficacy, its effect in our life, what it does. Elsewhere, David wrote so beautifully about the Bible. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and keeping them there is great reward. Brothers and sisters, you and I need the Bible in our lives more than we need business journals. You and I need the Bible in our lives more than we need CNN or Fox News. You and I need the Bible in our life more than we need social media. You and I need the Bible in our lives more than we need Netflix. You and I need the Bible in our lives more than we need YouTube videos and diet and exercise. You and I need the Bible in our lives more than we need video games. You and I need the Bible in our lives more than dozens of kids' activities that pack our life from sunup to sundown all, all every day of the week. You and I need the Bible in our lives more than we need our hobbies. You and I need the Bible in our lives more than just about anything else. And I'm not saying any of those things are wrong or, or not right to be partaken of, not at all. But it's just that we need the Bible more than those. That's the point. We are committed here as a church body to do our best to preach and teach the Word of God and help you to interpret the Word of God because it's vital and dynamic in your life and applicable every day, all the time. Even more so in times where there's more and more pressure coming upon believers, those who believe that the Scripture is true. Many excellent resources for all of us out there, but your church does its best to to provide as many of these as we can for you. The mission of Redeemer is to mature as a community of Christians who love to worship their God, study his word, and proclaim his gospel to the world. John Wesley said, I am a creature of the day, passing through life as an arrow through the air. I am a spirit coming from God and returning to God, just hovering over the great gulf. A few months hence, and I am no more seen. I drop into an unchangeable eternity. I want to know one thing, the way to heaven, God himself, as he has condescended to teach the way. He hath written it down in a book. Oh, give me that book at any price. Give me the book of God. Let's bow together in prayer. Lord, we are so grateful for your special revelation to us, and especially Jesus, who is revealed so vividly throughout every book. I pray, O oh Lord, that you would give all of us a, a deeper appreciation and love for your word. And that our church would be committed with all the pressures upon us, upon leadership, from the world at large and even other churches to forego this idea of the Bible or about the Bible. Please give us courage to stand fast for my brothers and sisters here whose lives are so filled with important responsibilities, good, many, many good things, but yet um, distracting things often, things that take us away from how Wesley described it as that book that just gives us 
that enduring truth that will take us from this life to the next. So little of what we do activity-wise has the same kind of impact, the eternal impact, really nothing on the level that the Bible does. So give us priority in our life regarding the Word of God. And Lord, may we always know and remember the truth of this, that the grass withers, the flowers fade, but the Word of our God will stand forever. In Jesus' name, amen.